The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly McMillan, and for the next hour, we're going to talk about anything related to firearms. Uh, I'm really happy to have my co-host here with me today, Zev the Wolf Nadler, uh, owner of bestdronage.com and the Firearms Concierge. Glad to be here, Kelly. we got a great show. Looking forward. Good. Well, our first guest has been uh, a friend of mine for a long time. We actually met, uh, oh, I think it was in the mid-2000, uh, maybe around 2006 or 2007. Um, such an guy, uh, one of the nicest guys I've ever met, but he called me up and he said, hey, Kelly, I'm going on a hunt and I really would like to hunt with one of your rifles. Uh, any chance you can get me one? And uh, I said, well, what do you want? He said, well, you know, three three thirty eight Win Mag would work. And I said, okay, I, I think I've got one of those in stock. When do you need it? He says, well, I leave tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so I flew from Phoenix to San Diego uh, with a gun case, checked it in and, and handed it to him and flew back home that night. And, and it was fortunate for me that I was able to get him uh, that rifle in time because when we were just rebranding the McMillan Brothers Rifle Company into McMillan Firearms, I needed a lot of help. And boy, I'll tell you, Mike Rogers, the host of... Um, Expedition Safari. Expedition Safari, uh, which was uh, an SCI uh, show, got more views than I think any other hunting show uh, on TV for the time that it was on. So uh, I got a lot of exposure really quickly with that rifle. Mike, I want to thank you for doing that for me, and I I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. It is an honor to be with you, and you are right. We are friends and have been since that time, and I still use that rifle today, and I'm so glad you flew to San Diego. Well, I'm glad that you've got it. I'm glad you still use it. You know, that's one thing about a rifle, and we talk about McMillan rifles. uh, They're not just the rifle that you're going to hunt with for your lifetime. It's the one that you're going to hand down to the next generation. So um, I'm glad you still got it. Hopefully someone in your family will appreciate that when it's time to pass it on. Surprising how accurate that rifle has stayed. I have have beat it up and taken it all over the world, and it's still to this day one of my favorite rifles because I know when I take it with me, I don't have to worry about it. Well, that's one of the things about a McMillan rifle with the fiberglass gun stock and and glass bedded and uh, match-grade barrels that we build them to be as accurate as they possibly can. My father always said the only thing pretty about a rifle is the way it's shot, so he wasn't too concerned about making the most beautiful rifle, but yeah, the more accurate it was, the the prettier it was to him. Uh, So you've taken it all over the world. It's been beat up and dragged around, and it's served you well. 
It has. It's been an amazing rifle. I've shot at long distances in certain cases, most recently in Texas when I was going through one of the training programs that are out there. It was the FTW SAM training, and I never thought I could shoot, never really had much of a desire to shoot at extremely long ranges. I'm the kind of hunter that wants to get as close as possible and take the most effective shot, the most ethical shot. We all do that. But every once in a while, you do want to know, can I shoot seven, 800 yards or maybe even out to 1,000? And I found out very quickly with the right training that that is very possible, and, and it was done there with your rifle, and I'm very proud to say that I was, I was hitting better than I ever thought I could. You know, that that's amazing because I'm in the middle of writing our next blog for Macmillan USA, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. The, the difference in concept of what long range is between back in the, the early 70s when I started in this industry to what it is today, and even my concept of what you know what I'm comfortable with shooting. I shot an elk at 780 yards, and I was absolutely certain that it was going to be a clean, ethical kill, uh, or I wouldn't have taken the shot. And and sure enough, the equipment today, the optics today, the rangefinders' abilities today, they give us all the information that we need to be able to make a good shot. Now, I, I'm not going to try to tell anybody that they can do it without practice and spending time behind a gun. That's the number one thing. You, you know, you've pulled a trigger probably as many uh, as much as any hunter I've ever known, so you have a pretty good idea of what it takes to shoot a gun accurately, and those things don't change from 100 yards to 1,000 yards. It's just the conditions in between and, and all of the ballistics that you need to know, and if you know that, you know, it's a pretty confident that the, the guns today can do that. And from a hunter's standpoint, when I take a shot, let's say it's a 300-yard shot, and there's a good crosswind going, which is very common, and if I take that shot, and I feel very comfortable about it, but let's say I get a gust of wind, and, and I don't hit where I've intended to hit, but I have hit, I need to have that confidence that I can finish the job. And when you know that you can shoot even further, as that perhaps it runs 100 yards, if, if that turns... I can finish the job very quickly because of that, what you just described, the technology, the optics, and knowing your ballistics, and of course, practice. Well, I remember watching an episode, and you were hunting mule deer, I think it was, and you were in a situation where, and you made the comment that you didn't like to do it, but you took a shot on the run with that rifle, and I think it was about you know, 200 or 225 yards that you shot this deer on the run and just nailed him. I mean, knocked him down like he was hit with a freight train. Uh, that was one of the most exciting episodes I can remember watching because, you know, it was out of your comfort zone. You know, you don't want to have to take a shot like that, but you were confident enough and, and you nailed him. That was really fun. Well, thank you for saying that because in the, the world of television, they no network really wants you to be taking a running shot for the obvious reason that those that watch that think, well, if he can do that, I can too. And that may or may not be the case. But when you travel and you go to Europe and some of these places where they're doing driven boar hunts, they practice that shot and they practice it effectively until they can be confident in what they're doing. And it's knowing that rifle and practicing that shot, which I'd done before, that I felt it's necessary to take that shot at that time. It's a lot of fun to be able to do that. What's worse, though, is when you try to do that and you 
didn't practice it, then you're going to start shooting a lot of bullets and maybe wounding animals, and that's not what we do as hunters. My father went to uh, Europe one year, and uh, in Finland, they have a hunter's test that includes a uh, basically what we would call a running boar, but it was a running moose that you actually have to shoot at while it's running, and you have to be proficient enough to get your hunting license. So there are areas in the world that, that really expect you to be able to shoot. In the U.S., if you can get a hunting license, uh, all you have to do is be able to sign your name, know your birth date, and, and pay the money. Uh, they they really don't do a very good job of, of making sure that those who are hunting are really qualified to. But I think that's something that we can improve on. You're absolutely right. You know, the organization I do a lot of work with, Safari Club International, has a very strong education program on education facility in Wyoming. And we're really working. I was on a conference call just recently talking about the benefits of education, educating youth in, in not just safety, but also in things like we're talking about gun proficiency, being able to understand what that gun does in your hands and how it can interact with the wildlife that you're after and what your responsibility is as a young hunter. And we're finding more and more, I think, that young people are safe they're enjoying the outdoors, and they're enjoying the use of firearms. They're enjoying shooting, even going to the range and understanding what those ballistics will be when they try different ranges. It's, it's fun to watch young people get it. Well, you and I both know that that the longevity of this industry and the sport and hunting in itself, it all depends on how good we are at engaging the young people because if we don't have the young people getting involved in firearms and, and shooting and hunting, uh, eventually nobody's going to do it. So it's important that we start at a young age and, and I, for one, personally have many programs where I sponsor youth shooters. I, I'm working on a program right now where I'm building a competition rifle specifically for juniors that I can lend to them that, so they can come out and shoot an F-class match without having to have the equipment first and know if they get that uh, real desire to shoot and then it'll, it'll save their folks a lot of time knowing whether or not, well, c you know, can I really afford to to build this kid a gun, is he really going to shoot? So that's one of the things that we do to try to get kids involved is, you know, make it easy for them to try it. That's fantastic because back in the old days when my dad taught me how to shoot, we had a .30-06 and we went outside to a, a safe shooting area and we just tried to connect with the target. And I didn't have good hearing protection. You know, we didn't have a muzzle brake on the gun or anything like that. And it, it was difficult for me to calm my nerves and steady, pull the trigger and not the gun. Some of the things that are basics, of course, but nowadays with the technology and the kinds of guns that you've made and how we train young people, they can become far more successful. And I've seen that happen in the field with young people that are a little apprehensive. Well, let's face it, if you're, if you're young, you're in your early teens or mid-teens, you want to hang with the big boys and you want to be successful and you might want to take that white-tailed deer. And you want to be good at it, but you're not sure really how to do it. And if you take them out to the range and you experience success on paper, they get that confidence built up, and then you walk them through it and you put them in a position where they can be successful and they're hooked for life. 
I want to continue talking about this, Mike, but I'd really like for you to take us back to where you grew up, how you got involved. You talked a little bit about going out and shooting the 30-06 with your dad. Uh, share with our listeners basically what it was like and, and how you got to the point where you were a, a host of a, an outdoor show. It's a good question. Um, it started for me with a BB gun like most of us, and I lived in a very you know, rural area where we had a lot of a lot of open country. I was able to kind of go out and walk around and try to get close to rabbits and shoot, and I found that really challenging. And I got to the point where I could shoot quail with my BB gun. I couldn't always drop them. And my dad said, you really like this, don't you? And he said, yeah. I said, yeah. And he said, well, let's go on a quail hunt. So we went on a California Valley quail hunt. I'll never forget it. I was very young at the time. And I had never seen a covey of quail that was rather large. I'd seen small groups, but... We had a covey of about 300 quail flush from right underneath us. And I stood there, and eyes wide open, absolutely ecstatic about this scene that was unfolding in front of me. And my dad is shooting birds. And I finally realized, hey, I better bring up my 20-gauge single shot and fire a shot. And I know in my heart of hearts to this day that I never aimed at anything. I just pointed at the group of birds and fired. And I'm absolutely sure I didn't hit a thing. But my dad said, good shot. And a bird fell down. And he said, this is yours. And he put it in my little pouch in the back of my, my uh, pack. And I was so excited. I was thrilled. I thought, wow, I did it. I did it. Now, I didn't do it. But he didn't tell me that. <laughs> he got me so excited about this that I didn't want to stop. And I'll never forget that day. Because it was really that first time where I felt, I can do this. This is fun. So we continued on hunting through my teens. I, I reached a point where I graduated from college, and at that point in time, I had not done a whole lot of hunting through the college years, like so many of America's youth these days. Too busy in college. But my dad had always wanted to go on a hunt, a big-time hunt, and he had saved his money and said, look, I want to take you to Africa. And so at the time, uh, I was going as an observer, and he said, why don't you get a camera? And I went to a camera store, and the camera guy there said, hey, we just got these brand-new cameras, these Sony High 8 It wasn't even High 8 It was a Sony 8-millimeter camera. And I just got into the store that week, and the guy said, you really ought to videotape this. So I got that camera, borrowed some money, took it on this hunt, which was to Zambia, Africa. It was in 1982. And we went to the Luangwa Valley and hunted with a man named Franz Coupe, and I took this camera, and I'll never forget the first day. We're sitting in a tree, and there's a leopard not 35 yards away from us feeding in the tree on an impala it had killed. And I'm filming this. And I'm thinking, I have the greatest hunting film ever made. We carried on throughout the trip, had a great time, came back, and I met with an editor. And the editor was going to help me put this together because we were going to make the greatest hunting film ever made. And he looked at all that footage and said it was terrible. And I was devastated. I said, what do you mean it's terrible? Look at this. He said, well, there's some good shots. It's a beautiful shot of a leopard you got there. But you don't have cutaways. You don't have establishing shots. You don't have storyline. You don't, you don't have anything to edit here. And I mean, I was really demoralized. And I thought, I went back to my dad. And I said, you know, this, this didn't turn out as good as I thought. And he said, well, why don't you go back to college and get a degree in film and telecommunications and do that. 
And I thought, oh, my goodness, I can't go back through all of that. I eventually took his advice and went back to San Diego State University, got into a, a program there, a film program there that was put together by some, some very prominent people. Um, one of the keys at Spielberg, uh, Kathleen Kennedy had graduated there, and she encouraged me to go there. So we went. I went through that four-year program, and I, I got out of there. And the next thing I knew, I had people saying, hey, I'd love to have you come film my hunt. So I did a hunt in Arizona. We called it Monster Elk, and I made a film, and Cabela's and Bass Pro took, picked it up and started selling it. And before you knew it, I had a couple of dozen videos out there selling, and I was traveling and enjoying hunting and making a, a decent living. And that's kind of how it all started. And what happened from there is when it got really interesting. Well, you know, that was really interesting to me because I had no idea. I just assumed you were a hunter that found its way into TV, but you were actually a movie guy who found something that you enjoyed filming and making movies out of, videos out of, that you turned into a profession, which is really cool. I really love to hear stories about people who find a way to do something that they love and to make a living at it, too. I'm glad you say that because I feel the same way. And as I look back on it, you always look back on your life and think, what should I have done differently? There's never a point where I really look at it and say I should have done something differently. And I do tell the story that at one point in time, I had somebody at Steven Spielberg's DreamWorks that had offered me a job there. And I could have moved to L.A. and I could have been in that Hollywood environment and tried to do that. And I knew in my heart of hearts that would not make me happy. But I knew I also could stick with the hunting and travel and find wild places and wilderness and, and take my camera and make memorable images and or films. And I always felt like when you made a film, it lasts forever. I have made some films that really still people watch. And it's, it's very rewarding. It's interesting that you said that when you your first film you thought was going to be really good, but you didn't know what you needed to know at that time. Right. I I did a hunt in South Africa. I hired a professional photographer, videographer to to stay with me for the 10 days of the hunt and and video it. And I just assumed that he would tell me everything that I needed to make good you know, video, uh, but he didn't. So I didn't have any of the B-roll. I didn't have any of the 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 build-ups. I didn't have any of the stuff that you didn't have on your first one. So when I got the videos back, I had, you know, 19 hours of video of which about, you know, 60 seconds of it was worth, you know, putting together. So and Very he, common story. And he didn't even get all of the you know the shots i i shot a zebra while he w his camera took 6 seconds to to roll up and by the time it finally got to the point where it was rolling the zebra was already running off he didn't even get the shot so i know what it's like to be expecting something beautiful and then you find out wow i'll do that different next time it's so true. And, you know, it is indicative of some of the folks out there. Let's face it, it's very easy to get camera, and you, it's very uh, attractive to go travel and see some of these great places that we as hunters get to see and want to create a film. Yet, I always look at it as the whole story, everything leading up to the actual pulling of a trigger, is so important 
to what we do. It might be the culture that you see. It also might be the firearm you're using. It's how do you get in place, and how does this hunt evolve, and what are we looking for, and how do we determine that that is an old male, post-productive, past his prime, has nothing to look forward to than a, a slow death, and maybe that's the ideal old bull for us to take out of this herd. And as we do that, we try to describe that, but it's always better to show rather than tell. So that's the beauty of video and film is that we can show things, but you've got to be showing the right things edited together with a storyline that is resonating, that is important and impactful for the viewer to go, wow, I get it. That's the best, best uh, compliment I could ever get is when somebody said, I'm not much of a hunter, but I really enjoyed that. Now I see why you do this. It makes sense. That's what I'm trying to do. So you wanted to tell the story about how you got into being a TV host. Uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one because going through all of this period of time where I'm making outdoor films, I also have to kind of produce them, if you will. So I started this little video company and, and I bought an editing system and I started doing my own editing, had some people working for me, but generally it was a one-man band type of show. And as I'm doing that, we reach a point in time in the early 2000s where Safari Club, in, in, in its efforts to market and communicate what it does as an organization, determined that they wanted to do a television show. And at the time, it was on Outdoor Life Network, the OLN, which turned into Versus. And some producers said, hey, we could produce this. And, and so a producer was hired by Safari Club, but they didn't have a host. And I was hoping that I would be considered to produce part or all of this show. And they told me, no, no, we don't want you to produce it, but we do want you to consider hosting it. And now you've got to imagine, in my shoes, I'm always behind the camera. I've always been a cameraman, a producer, an editor. I've never been in front of the camera. I had a little experience with it, but not enough to be the host representing Safari Club International. And so we did a test, and they said, look, we've got a two-day pronghorn hunt in New Mexico, and we're going to send you out there, and we're going to send a cameraman with you. And I said, when is it? They said, well, it's the day after tomorrow. So it was one of those better call Kelly quickly type deals. <laughs> so I got my gear together and went to New Mexico. We shot this show, and they put it together quickly, and they ran it by some focus groups at Outdoor Life Network. And they said, that's exactly the guy that we want. And we asked them why, and they said, well, we want somebody that's not too young, not too old, somebody in their 40s or 50s, you know, I was 45 at the time, and they said, we want somebody that understands what it's like to shoot and produce in the outdoors. We also need somebody that knows hunting, that actually can hit, because it is a challenge when you've got a camera pointing at you and you've got to make that shot right now. And lastly, we want somebody that understands Safari Club International as an organization, since that's the title sponsor. So they said, it's you. You have to do this. And I thought, wow. This is and the fact that you're ruggedly handsome and, and look good <laughs> in front you. of the camera probably had something to do with it, too. Well, I, I'm not so sure at, at this point in time, but at the time they asked me to do that, I thought, you know, this could go really well. It could also go really badly. And I knew that the challenge now was to find these opportunities that would be television-worthy, these hunts. And Safari Club 
turned out to be the greatest place to be because as an organization that holds an annual convention, you get a thousand exhibitors, over 500 of them are outfitters. And we found a way where the outfitters could benefit their businesses by showing what it is they offer as an outfit, whether it's in Africa or Argentina or Tajikistan, didn't matter. We, tr- we tried to do half North American hunts for the obvious reason of resonating with the North American hunter, and the, half, the other half being international hunts, those aspirational hunts, those places in, in Azerbaijan where people think, wow, what would it be like to go after the Dagestan Tur in Azerbaijan? I had no idea, but I knew that we had the right people that could take us to these places. And so as we developed the television series, we also developed a methodology to help promote some of these, these unique opportunities, these outfitters that came from all over the world that wanted to show the world this is what it's like to go to you know, Central America and hunt the Central American whitetail, shall we say. I mean, it's, it's really been a great source of information for the hunter who's looking to see, can I do that? Because let's face it, some hunts are extremely difficult, challenging, physically demanding, and others are not. But it doesn't mean they're, they're not both fantastic experiences. Well, Mike, uh, we need to move on. I, sure. We've only got about two minutes left, and, and I want to hear what you're doing now. I know that uh, the show's no longer on the air, and you've moved on to do some, some really great work. So why don't you talk about what you're doing right now, real briefly. Okay. Briefly, working with other countries, specifically right now, Mexico. We're trying to increase tourism there for bird hunting, for the most part, also fishing, uh, working in some television commercials to help promote education, humanitarian services, so many good things hunters are doing that need to be shown. Uh, Also working on some potential new projects. I've just recently been told that they're not going to continue the show this year, but for financial reasons, and they're hoping to restart it up next year with a vengeance. So who knows what the future brings. Uh, by any chance, are any of the old episodes available anywhere online? I know a lot of the, the TV shows, uh, you know, put them on uh, their YouTube channel. Or is there somewhere any of the listeners out there can go back and see some of your old episodes? We're days away from getting it on a YouTube channel. There are a lot of challenges with doing that right now. Networks don't want to see a whole lot of YouTube, and YouTube doesn't want to have a whole lot of guns, unfortunately. However, it seems to have worked its way out, and it looks like we'll have a channel up very soon, but we don't have one right now. It's been kind of hard to find these old episodes. Well, that's good to hear. I'd suggest all my listeners look for any of the episodes that that you can get a hold of to watch, because they're absolutely incredible. You do a great job, and the hunting is is bar none as good as there is out there. Mike, I want to thank you for being on the show. It's been a a real pleasure talking to you. I look forward to the next time we get together. Um, And I really would like to go on a hunt with you. So if you come up with something that, that sounds like we ought to do it together, let me know. You got a deal. Thanks. I want, uh, I'd like all of my listeners to stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with our next guest. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
For over 40 years, McMillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, McMillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the McMillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at McMillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit McMillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit McMillanUSA.com. internet flagship station for sports voice america sports you are listening to taking stock with kelly mcmillan now back to the show Welcome back. I want to thank all of you for sticking with us through the commercial break. Uh, I just want to make one comment, and I'm sorry we didn't have more time with Mike, but I watched one of his episodes. He mentioned Dagestan Tur in Azerbaijan, and I watched that, and it convinced me that I am never going to hunt Dagestan Tur in Azerbaijan. He was walking on a, a 12-inch wide footpath on the side of a mountain that was about 25 degrees straight down and had had he stepped off the path you know there would have been nothing stopping him for 2500 feet down to the bottom and that is not where i'm going to be hunting i promise you but he did a great job got a a nice dagestan tur and that's about as close as i'm going to get to it so i want to move on to our next guest now um our next guest and I have known each other for quite a while. He's so instrumental in almost everyone who is in the the shooting sports here in Arizona. He is the head of the Arizona State Rifle and Pistol Association. But not only that, he's one of the really good guys who works really hard to keep the firearms industry viable here and the shooting sports alive. I want to welcome Noble. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, what we do with most of our guests is we just start uh, with a, a brief history. Tell us where you grew up, you know, how you got involved in, in working for the, the range and, and got to where you are today. Well, I was uh, born in Texas, grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, uh, I can't even remember not being a shooter, and uh, I still have the twenty two that my father gave me. I've, again, I can't even remember when it was, but must have been when I was in first grade or something. But um, uh, was um, heavily involved in outdoor uh, activities. Uh, never played much sports, but my dad always had me had me outdoors with a fishing rod or a firearm in my hand. Um, I, uh, a career kind of in life kind of got in my way, uh, for the next umpteen years, but, uh, about 1985 or six, when we moved to Arizona, I got involved with, um, Arizona State Rifle and Pistol Association through, uh, Terry Allison and, uh, joined up then. And, uh, we used to shoot over at the old, uh, uh, armory over there, um, in, I think it was on McDowell. And later moved on out to uh, Ben Avery, but uh, 
he really got me interested in the uh, uh, defensive use of firearms, and uh, uh, I had had an AR-15 since, I think, 1970 or 71, and uh, was really enamored with that thing, and still am, as you'll probably hear later on. But uh, got into uh, competitive shooting about 1988, and uh, uh, shoot uh, NRA high power, and uh, became a master uh, in, I believe it was 1996, with my M1A, with a Macmillan stock, I should add, and uh, have been uh, competitive uh, ever since until the last three or four years when my eyes have, uh, uh, as we all do, I think, when we get this age, but my eyes have been failing a bit. It's been a little bit hard to compete. But uh, I've been very involved with uh, the instructional uh, aspects of firearms, both pistol and rifle, and uh, my entire life, and uh, used to even teach people in high school, you know, uh, the NRA fundamentals and and, uh, safety. So I've been involved uh, all of my life, all of my adult life for certain, and uh, um, even though career and family and kids kind of got in the way, uh, I kept going, and uh, all my children have been raised in a in a firearms culture, and they're all uh, uh, they all have their own interests now with firearms, and so I'm just uh, very happy. I have no regrets whatsoever in what I've done uh, in my life. I want to make a comment about the competition that you you um, participated in, and you talked about your your vision going bad. Uh, the NRA in in high power, especially service rifle, is is all open sights. And I know yes. that there is a lot of high-power competition that's open sites. Now, the NRA most recently has started to open up some divisions with for scoped rifles. So I know that they're um, cognizant of the problems that they have, especially with an older uh, group of people that are, are shooters that who... Yes. I think that the NRA was at its peak probably late 80s to late 90s, and I know that they're looking now to find ways to get more people involved. Is that part of what you do with the Arizona State Rifle and Pistol Association? Uh, Kelly, yes. Uh, every year we have a big match uh, called the Washington's Birthday Match. It's usually in February uh, out at um, Ben Avery. And in the last few years, uh, when we've seen interest in uh, iron sight shooting wane considerably, um, uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that, as you probably know, but we uh, actually opened up that match to uh, red dots and, and scopes. Now, it... it it might sound like, well, they have a distinct advantage having a scope. You really don't. And uh, Kelly, I know you're a, uh, you know, you use a scope on your rifles quite a bit. Uh, to stand up and shoot uh, at a target 200 yards away at a, a six-inch bullseye uh, with the scope offhand is, uh, is is something that I would think quite a disadvantage. However, um, it does bring people out to shoot that would not come out to shoot any other way. Now, the second aspect of this, uh, which we, we've all been very vocal about with NRA and everybody else, the youngsters, uh, which we want to be, uh, uh, you know, coming out to learn to compete and, and, and become good sports and learn their uh, rifle craft, um, they're totally not interested in iron sights. Uh, they don't use them in video games. They don't see them on TV. Uh, their heroes, which are a lot of the military folks, um, uh, have pretty much gotten away from it. So there, there, there's a lot of things to be said about uh, opening up competition uh, to uh, rifles with, with red dots and scopes. Our previous guest talked about 
getting youth involved in the shooting sports. I think everybody who's involved in this industry that wants to see the shooting sports succeed and live on understands how important it is to have the youth involved. Yes. Um, Kelly, about five years ago, in fact, I don't know if you were at the dinner or not. We have a a big um, dinner every year, but, but five years ago we had four of our junior high power team that qualified uh, actually, I'm sorry, three that qualified for the major military academies. Now, they won full shooting scholarships uh, to Annapolis and uh, Air Force Academy and West Point. Uh, this year, our, uh, the team that competed in Camp Perry last year, we have a young lady from my hometown here in Prescott, uh, Sarah Nguyen, and she actually got a full shooting scholarship to Annapolis. She will be leaving this weekend for Annapolis, and uh, we are just just ecstatic, you know, about the, the success of these young folks. They're just absolutely wonderful. Their, their academics are, are incredible. They're the most wonderful young folks I've ever worked with in my life. And I have been involved with them for about 14 years with the ASRPA, and I couldn't be more proud. And, yes, it is, it's imperative that we keep these youngsters uh, uh, focused on, on precision sports as well as their uh, books and, and their, their studies. But um, I, I, I just am so impressed with these young folks. You should be proud because Arizona has become the basically the junior team to beat, and it's been that way for at least 15 years that I know of. I know Larry uh, Larry Nelson, uh, his son Larry, uh, shot on the, the national championship junior team and then got a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship to um, – I thought it was Alabama State, but it it was a, a school in Alabama, and so he went four years to college, got a degree uh, because he was a good shooter, and and got to do something that he loved for an additional four years. So uh, I'd really want these listeners out here because you know everybody listening to the show is involved in the firearms industry or wants to be uh, that. There are a lot of institutions, colleges out there that have shooting teams that give scholarships. So if you're really interested, get involved in the Arizona um, Rifle and Pistol Association. Absolutely. If you're here in this state. Uh, Kelly, we have a wonderful uh, uh, team of uh, uh, adults and coaches and staff. And uh, uh, we, you know, it's a tremendous strain. Like most of you who have had children, you know that being a soccer mom or uh, you know, something, uh, taking your kids to tennis lessons and things like that. There's a strain on the parents. There's a financial strain, a time strain. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it's just the best thing in the world for a youngster to grow up uh, learning precision sports. And I'm just totally a believer in it, whether it's golf or shooting or anything else. So uh, we applaud the parents also. Uh, their 50% of this uh, success rate is having the wonderful parents that sponsor. Uh, we have a, a family that uh, they drive down almost twice a week during the summer for practice from Payson. We have them that drive down from the reservation. And it's just it's wonderful to see the parents and the elders uh, getting involved here. One of the things that I think is great for the kids is that they are they compete right alongside with the adults. They, they, they are not segregated from all of the other shooting um, divisions. So they, 
I think, tend to grow up faster. They they don't get away with some of the stuff that they would if they were playing soccer because they're only playing with people of their own age group. But when these juniors go out to shoot, they're laying down on the range right next to a group of old guys and, and women. And, and so they really are expected to act uh, more adult and be more responsible and because they're they're using firearms that level of responsibility is so much higher than it is with a soccer ball or a basketball absolutely oh absolutely yeah a lot of responsibility there and we again we have the parents right there with them uh, during practice uh, we have the coaches with them at Camp Perry and we issue them all the equipment and but they have to make a commitment to really knuckle down and be part of the team and uh, learn sportsmanship, learn how to shoot. Uh, Kelly, the other thing, uh, other aspect of the, the junior shooters that I've found, uh, I've had a lot of, uh, especially young young men, who have really struggled with math. And I have found a tremendous opportunity to teach these young men math uh, through the shooting sports. And you, you'll know, if, you know, ballistics and things like that. But it's something that they can apply themselves to and they can understand. And uh, there's a picture there that they can see that this is why I want to do this. So I have had some wonderful opportunities with that, too. It's hard to imagine how a you know a kid playing basketball can use his geometry while he's thinking about running the triangle offense that <laughs> Phil Jackson runs. Yeah. But yep. but definitely anybody who's ever done any long range shooting that requires any ballistic calculation, how Absolutely. important math is to shooting. Yep, you got it. It's it's quite quite something, and uh, they have to really think. It makes them focus, and it makes them think about what they're doing. That's the. I think the one of the things that that helps these kids grow up. Uh, I don't know of anybody who's ever been involved in shooting who's who's had those tough times uh, when they get out of school and you know be tempted by drugs. And I'm sure there's some of them, but I think that that. The fact that they're into something that they love, they're dedicated to it, their families have to be dedicated to it, and they spend so much time together is one of the things that saves them from, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. making stupid decisions. I totally agree, and, and, and bringing them up, you know, like a, uh, the good book says, bringing these kids up, you know, from an early age, it just kind of tempers them for the rest of their life, not that they can't go out and, and uh, stray from the, the, the narrow path, you know, a good path, but but uh, again, it sets a really good fundamental for kids to be uh, outdoors, be with shooting sports, uh, thinking, focusing, and uh, um, you know, uh, t- learning from people who are experienced and their elders. And you know, Noble Zev here, by the way. Hello, how are you? Hi, Zev. <laughs> you know, when you talk about that, it makes me think about the mix of parents, coaches, and kids, and other kids, and their parents. It's really a community, and I think it's a community that fosters maturity, that fosters responsibility, and really sets them apart from the others um, in so many ways. So when they're inundated by, whether it's you know in high school or in, in university, by people talking about how guns are bad, or guns are only mm-hmm. no good, and the guns kill, and then they, they actually get to a uh, a situation where there's a community where it's good and they and they're able to exhibit responsibility. I think they grow up quicker, and I think that's oh, I do, I do, yeah. yes, sir. I'm with you. One of the things I want to talk about now, Noble, is you you mentioned the dinner that you have, and and that to me 
is more than just an awards. You've always used it as a way to raise awareness about what the firearms industry is like. And I don't want to say that it's political in nature, but, you know, in these days and times when uh, half of the uh, the people out there want to take away our right to, to own firearms and to compete and to, to enjoy this lifestyle, um, it always ends up being kind of an us against them. That's correct. Uh, Kelly, our last dinner, which was May 6th, and um, we had, uh, uh, I know some of you might not remember, but uh, uh, Bob Corbin, which was uh, our attorney general uh, 25 years ago, he was at one of our dinners that we had. And uh, he just so happened that he and his uh, uh, late wife, Helen, had been to Australia to talk to Parliament uh, about this new gun thing, this new rifle thing that they were trying to instill uh, in their their laws down there. Uh, Bob uh, was at the dinner on May 6th, and I was up there sort of reiterating about that. And I told Bob, I said, "You, Bob, you were the guest speaker that night. But a young man from Australia uh, stood up, and he said, yes, uh, he said, this is absolutely right. He was an exchange student, by the way, at NAU. And he said, this is absolutely right. He said, they, they took three of my uh, semi-automatic 22 long rifles and chopped them up. Now, they paid me for them, but, you know, they confiscate them. So these dinners have threads going all the way through them about things like this, that it's an information center. Uh, it's a fun time. Uh, we had uh, Nick Adams, which is a Fox uh, Friends and uh, uh, Fox, um, I guess it's the, uh, the thing they have on in the morning, that news show, but he's a contributor to that. And he was our guest speaker from Australia. And uh, we had a lot of people there that were just uh, uh, native Arizonans had been in the industry. Some of them knew each other. Some of them didn't. But it's we've always used these as an information center for people in Arizona, no matter what level of firearms um, uh, they're in, whether it's manufacturing or just users. So um, we have these once a year. We we do a minor fundraising, which kind of helps us uh, in, in our uh, paying the bills. But but uh, it's good to get people together uh, socially, and not a lot of people are doing this in the firearms industry. And uh, I've been just adamant about that uh, being president for the last seven years. We've, we've done this at least once a year, and I, th- I know you've been to some of them too, but we have a lot of fun. And, and again, people get to meet each other and kibitz and talk and get over in the corner and talk what, about whatever they want. So we feel like they're very important. You know, Noble, I was there this year, and first of all, I'll let everybody know the food is great. Uh, you had Rock Springs <laughs> pie and uh, a little bit of wine if you pre-ordered. It was a really, really fine dinner, and I love that speaker from Australia because he not only had, you know, a, a, a national story to tell about the guns and, mm-hmm. and, and how to get past that, but he had also been uh, a survivor of cancer. Um, just the overall speech was amazing. Hey, you also yep. had another fellow there that represented a a group called Black Guns Matter. And I found that fascinating because he was able to dispel the myth that, you know, white America or Republicans or conservatives are trying to take away guns from from the Mm -hmm. minorities and don't care what goes on in the inner city. And then here we had a gentleman who grew up in the inner city and was able to speak to it so eloquently. Um, It really made a huge impression on me and I think everybody else there. Yeah, he. Um, uh, we were just fortunate to have him uh, uh, be offered to us. He was doing. He was on a tour for the NRA. Uh, this young man goes into the 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 most despicable neighborhoods in uh, big city, big urban America, 
centers and uh, teaches people that you do not have to be a victim. Uh, you can fight back. You can own firearms. You can become trained. And uh, no matter what the government or anybody else tells you, you're not worthless and you're not helpless. And he goes in into these communities and, and speaks almost on a daily basis. And his name is Maj Touré. And uh, I would urge everybody to Google Maj. He's got a website, and he's one of the most wonderful young men. And uh, everybody just fell in love with him at the dinner. And I would like to have him back maybe next year or, or some at one of the other social events and have him speak longer because he only um, had about 15 minutes. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Zev, because he's a wonderful young man doing good work. I think that's a great segue to what I'd like to talk about next, and that's the Citizens Anti-Terrorist Active Shooter Survival Course. Tell us a little bit about what that's about. Well, um, Kelly, about two years ago when I sort of saw the uh, handwriting on the wall that I was really ready to venture out into something else with the ASRPA, I uh, started working on my replacement as president of ASRPA, but I started working on uh, uh, more of the education and training division, which we've had for about 60 years. Um, I appointed a, um, a staff. We, I think we have eight people uh, who are on our training committee, and they come from all walks of life. We have an attorney. We have some, some operator types. We have some ex-law enforcement. We had a gentleman that wrote curriculum for uh, universities all over the United States. So it was a wide variety of people on our staff, and they're still there. What I did is commission them, uh, and this was right after Orlando, uh, the, the catastrophe there in the club. And what we all talked about at the table that day at Deer Valley Airport at the conference room was we could not understand why those people laid there in the floor while this just this guy just uh, came by at leisure and just would shoot two or three of them at a time, and he'd get on Facebook, and then he'd go shoot two or three more. We were just all blown away by that. So what I did is I commissioned the uh, a committee to come up with a citizen's anti-terrorist uh, survival course. Now, this isn't for the cop. This isn't for the, the operator. This isn't for somebody that's, uh, you know, uh, a real terror with, with their firearms or their self-defense firearms. This is for a, a soccer mom or an average person who might get caught in the crossfire, might be in a mall, uh, might be anywhere, uh, as we know. Now, as you know, since Orlando, uh, look what's happened. But almost on a monthly basis, we've had these issues. So this course, we've uh, taught it two or three times so far to kind of make sure we have it perfected. But we want to just uh, get out there and just teach this thing all over. Uh, I mean, we want to share it with other state organizations. But uh, what we're trying to do is tell people how to survive these things. Don't sit there and let somebody just come by and kill you. Do something. My gosh, you know, run, fight, or, or whatever you're going to do. So there are a lot of guidelines in this three-hour course that just tells the average person uh, you know, there are things you can do. Just don't sit there and become a, a victim just because you're scared or whatever. You've got to do something. So that Noble, I'm glad is, that I'm. I'm sorry. I'm glad ahead. that Kelly brought go that ahead. up because that was in your uh, in your bio, but I hadn't actually seen that. And that's something I do in, in my community. We try to teach people, even if you don't have a firearm, what it is yes. you can do. And and you know, one of the simple things is just slap your hand up against the action and cause a failure to feed or a failure to reject. I mean, you could actually put their gun out of commission and save a lot of lives. Now, do you also teach folks who don't have guns what they could do as far as fighting oh, yeah. in that manner oh, sure. as well? Or? Yeah. Part of that course is uh, for people who have firearms and part of it's not. Now, what we're trying to do here, we're trying to talk to people who have a stigma about 
self-defense. Now, I had a lady from the United Nations that came out uh, six or eight months ago, and we were in a coffee shop. We talked for five or six minutes. She said, by the way, I've got to ask you, are you armed? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, you know, well, you know, do you think I am? And she goes, I don't know. She said, I just can't imagine people carrying firearms like that. I said, well, I'll tell you what. If somebody comes in, like in the Orlando situation, I said, I promise you, you'll walk out of here. I might not, but I promise you, you will. And this lady was just blown away. She just could not comprehend that. Uh, by the way, this was very close after Orlando. So that kind of helped me, and I told stories to our committee about several people who had had that same, uh, that same way of thinking. And I said, we've got to stop this. We've got to teach these people that they don't need to sit there and take this. You know, my, my gosh, just get up at least. At least if they get you, you're, you're on your way to, you know, to, to stop these people. So that's what the CATS course is all about, and we are teaching that through our certified training centers at ASRPA, which you can actually call me about or, or, or talk to me about later uh, if you want to, and I'll tell you how to become qualified as an instructor. And uh, we're also still teaching all the NRA courses and the civilian marksmanship program courses, but our uh, certified training centers uh, are teaching our own proprietary courses, and we, we train people and we teach them how to teach the teachers even, so... Uh, yeah, it's 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 going to be really good, and, and it becomes more relevant every day. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up, and, and you you talked about the mindset that everybody in this meeting had. And you know, it's funny anybody who's in the North Valley that's been involved in firearms in any way has had a meeting at the Deer Valley Airport in the conference room. <laughs> yes. A lot of stuff related to firearms happens in that place. I tell you, we, but what, we've had a few there, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. What I wanted to comment on was that. You know, unfortunately, you said, how could people just lay there and let that happen? But unfortunately, with the age group of the people that were in there and with mm-hmm. the way that they've been taught that mm-hmm. be submissive, you can't be aggressive, you want to just just lay there, don't right. piss anybody off. Uh, th- that's why they did that. That's the way they've been taught. Now, for exactly. you and I, who grew up in a different time... I even thought about the same thing in in, uh, 9-11 when they were only equipped with a box cutter. Well, if if I could get face-to-face with a guy with a box cutter, he's not going to mortally wound me. And I could stop him from doing anything that I wanted him to, you know, that he wanted to do. So... I wondered why it took so long. It, 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 the last plane was the first one that anybody stood up and said, we're not going to take this. Um, exactly. The result was that they all died anyway, but the fact was is that they kept them from doing what they wanted to do. And so I think we all kind of think we know what we would do in a certain situation, and I will tell you, I've had a situation where I always thought that I'd, I'd be a hero if I just had the situation. Well, I had a situation mm-hmm. come up, and I did not act exactly the way I thought I would before that mm-hmm. situation came up so you know we think we know I think the more we practice what we would do in the situation is the more likely that we'll be able absolutely. to fulfill that absolutely that's part that's part of the training procedure is practice 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 and for anybody here in Arizona that's interested in that class how can they find out more about it and, and what do they need to do Kelly, uh, they can email me at vice president at asrpa.com. And I'm also on the directory of our website, asrpa.com. And uh, they can, uh, uh, we do group courses. Uh, some of the churches are interested in the course. And um, again, it's not a political course whatsoever. It's just a course to teach people how to survive these situations. And 
we can go into churches, into uh, community centers, whatever, and teach the course. And uh, we have right now, I think we have six or eight uh, certified training centers, and we should have uh, uh, about 12 to 14 by the end of the year. And we will have two or three that are Spanish-speaking, too, which uh, we work fairly hard on getting that done. So uh, they can contact me. I'm now head of uh, education and training for the ASRP, ASRPA, and uh, we'll be happy to tell them all about that. We have several other courses, too, that we're offering uh, as proprietary courses, too, as well as NRA and CMP. So. And in about 30 seconds, uh, let our listeners know uh, if they're interested in any type of competition shooting, what type of uh, shoots that, that you participate in and, and how they can get in touch with you for that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the best thing to do is to get on our directory, and I think we have 21 divisions, uh, pistol silhouette, rifle silhouette, silhouette NRA high power bench rest, uh, uh, defensive handgun. I mean, it goes, the list goes on and on and on. And they can call those division director, uh, directors directly uh, off of the directory. And if they have issues, they can call me or the president, the new president, Craig Joyner. They can call either one of us or email and we'll, we'll point them to the right direction. And uh, we want people moving in here from out of state to get involved with the state association. We represent 110,000 NRA members here in the state, and we want everyone that moves in here to be a member and support the organization. Well, thanks for that information, Noble. Uh, once again, listeners, uh, you've been listening to Noble Hathaway, the president of the Arizona State Rifle and Pistol Association. Uh, so great to have you on. Really, thanks for sharing all that information, and thanks for all the hard work you do. Thank you, Kelly, and thank you, Zeb. I appreciate you both. God bless you, and God bless America. And I want to thank all our listeners for spending their time with us. We know your time is valuable. Appreciate you being here, and look forward to seeing you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.